I am the devil, and I am here to do the devil's work. In episode one, we talked about real life people who we thought wrote fan fiction about themselves. Yes. And I want to add to that and say that I think Doja Cat has written fan fiction about herself. Absolutely. And it's it's, it's actually insane that we didn't think of her first. Yeah. Um, if anyone is going to write fanfic about themselves, it's Doja Cat. Yes. Like that's... Like Doja Cat X reader fanfic. Yes, Absolutely. Yeah, or she has, like, specific ones yes. that she's written about specific other people. Like, she's still in it. It's, like, Doja Cat X whatever person. Oh, Amazing. yeah. I, I wish we could that. find it. I yeah. wish we could find, like, and make sure that it's, like, it's hers. Right. I'm like, Doja Cat Doja, is an you can internet make a, person. Make a lot of money on that. Oh, if people sure. knew which account that you had and, like, what fix you've written, they would pay money to see that shit. It's true. But Just, I, you know. I don't know. Doja Cat doesn't like to get, like extra money from her fans. Like, I think about that uh, video of her on live where they were doing that thing where it, like, made sunglasses come up. And yeah. then she was like, oh, it's so fun. And then someone was like, they cost money. And she's like, don't do that. Yeah, she's I'll like, absolutely, yeah, don't do that. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Because she is amazing. Yeah. We love her. She's <laughs> just here to exist on the internet. She is. She is, like, the chin of marbles of music. She really is. Like, that kind of, like, internet person. Where absolutely. It's like, she's making fucking bank, like, touring and her music and stuff. She's like, I don't need teenagers to give me money on TikTok. Yeah, absolutely. I'm an adult. Yeah. <laughs> she's like, I don't need that. She's like, I'm just here to have fun. Just here to have the vibes. Right. Oh, love her. Um, well, welcome to the podcast. This is the Podcast Rejects, of course. I'm Spencer, sitting with Alaska. Hello. And uh, we are going into episode three yes. of our fan fiction series. The really moving right along. Longest fan series ever made. <laughs> yeah. Longest series we've ever made. Oh, for sure. Um, so we have entered the 90s. Finally, the internet is here. Um, and again, I know the internet has existed before the 90s. Do not send me pedantic messages about it. I don't give a shit. Who um, cares? Who cares? Yeah. <laughs> like, listen, everything I say is right, and I won't take any corrections. Yes. Uh, <laughs> um, so before we even start, we have our third copyright law break. Um, and this was in the 90s. So in the 90s, a bunch of Disney's copyrighted works were about to enter the public domain. And the public domain, we will talk about in detail in our legality episode, because it's kind of a lot to unpack if you don't know anything about copyright law. But basically, Disney was about to lose a lot of their copyright holdings. They had to hang on to that mouse, you know. Without the mouse, they can't get the cheese. Exactly. So they spent uh, ridiculous amounts of money uh, to, you know, get their lawyers to get this new copyright law instated. So Mm -hmm. it was called the Sonny Bono Copyright Term Extension. It is often, like, referred to as the Mickey Mouse Act, Mm -hmm. like most people refer to it as, because it was Disney that pushed it through. So it was passed in 1998. And it extended protection from life of the author plus 50 years to life of the author plus 70 years. Yes. So they got 20 years on this. Uh, It did, like, people thought that Disney was going to push for it again in uh, 2018, 2017, 20 years after this, because it was up for entering the public domain. But, of course, Disney has figured something out 
Uh, we will talk about that in our legality episode. Yeah. Uh, so not a huge change, but it, it was a change in copyright law. Mm-hmm. So beginning of the 90s, internet changes everything. Yeah. You know, it's changed everything about human interaction and human life altogether. Mm-hmm. Obviously, in the early 90s, like, people having computers at home and, like, their own internet um, connections was not super, super common. Computers were very expensive. Yeah. Um, a lot of people that did have these, like, computers early on were <laughs> hyper nerds. Um, yes. Uh, this is just sort of like, you know, and, and, you know, and when you think about this time, like, there wasn't a lot of, like, operating systems. Like, you couldn't go and, like, look at your fucking Mac and just go to the internet. Like, these were, it was a lot harder to use the internet to begin with. Yeah. Or like computers in general. People right. had like floppy disks with Microsoft Word on it. Right. And then it's a like separate disk to, like, for Excel. You know? Exactly. Like you had to really know a lot to even use them because it wasn't very user friendly. Uh, but nevertheless, I'm like, nerds exist in fandom culture. And so fanfic existed together. Absolutely. Um, so obviously speed was a huge factor here so before everything was in fanzines and to get them you had to like go to cons you know like fan conventions or know someone or find out about it in some way and then send them your mailing address and like pay for them to mail the fanzine to you it was like a whole rigmarole right and it took a long time to publish these you know fix that would be in fanzines it wasn't like you write it and then you can publish it two seconds later like there was a process Mm -hmm. but of course with the internet it became a lot easier to share and find fanfic so speed really played a big a big part in this the internet also provided anonymity so this was something that didn't exist at all in fanzine culture um you know your name was attached to it yeah every single time Mm -hmm. um or at least the name of the editor you know, with the internet, we finally get people being able to publish things and having them completely disconnected to themselves as a person. Yeah. And so, first of all, shame gets thrown out the window when you can just explore what you want when, you know, whenever. Yeah. But also, you know, people that just want to explore these things and don't want to uh, have it affect their real life, like anonymity increases the amount of people who are even writing fanfic. Absolutely. And at some point, too, like, a lot of these major sites, you know, called like archive sites for fan fiction didn't even allow or didn't even require people to register with the site to see fanfic. So it just extends that anonymity because they could really just lurk on any website, which yeah. is how it is today, except for with Wattpad. Mm-hmm. You can go on AO3, you can go on fanfic.net and you know, read anything and everything at the time of your life without actually making an account. Um, so, you know, there's just a lot less inhibiting people from reading fanfic. Absolutely. Um, so Star Trek, X-Files, Frasier, these were some of the big fandoms of the time, and most of them had websites of their own. So it's like fan websites that would, you know, be made with Angel Fire or whatever. They, you know, I'm like, maybe it was even before Angel Fire. Like, it was just these blogs that people would make mm-hmm. um, specifically for a fandom um, and even sometimes specifically for a ship within a fandom. Yeah. Uh, most of these don't exist anymore, obviously. They've lo- they've been internet relics for a very long time. But nevertheless, like, th- that was where fan fiction was found. So you were in a fandom, you found these specific fandom websites. There was no fan fiction site. It was the same as fanzines. It was everything to do with that fandom and fan fiction just existed there. Yeah. So fan fiction, as we talked about in the Star Trek world, uh, has long been responsible for 
explorations in gender and sexuality. Mm -hmm. So it was an exploration of things that were a lot of times not accepted by the general public. So homosexuality or sexual kinks or what have you could be explored in a safe environment within fan fiction. And also you could explore, you know, just relationships in general, you know, human interactions through characters. And then in the 80s and 90s, several shows cropped up that sort of followed suit with the themes from fan fiction. So they kind of explored these same themes of gender and sexuality within the context of actual media that wasn't fan-made. So these shows have insane lasting ability. Uh, They had huge dedicated fandoms in their heyday. And even now, like, (laughs) I think for certain fandoms, you would consider these, like, required reading. Like, these are prereqs. So these would be Twin Peaks, X-Files, and Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Right. These are the big three. So X-Files exhibited a Sherlock or, you know, Sherlock and Watson or Spock and Kirk relationships. It was rationalist to the intuitionist type of character, like this dynamic, Mm -hmm. although with the gender swapped. So instead of two men or two women, it was man and a woman, and the woman was the rationalist and the man was the intuitionist. Mm -hmm. So, and, you know, more than that, this was one of the first shows where we have a female character that is considered a male to, or considered an equal to the male character. Which is huge. Um, Mulder and... Mulder? Yes. Yeah, Mulder, right? I don't know why I said that, and then I was like, that's not right. Um, Mulder and Scully, they are equals in the show. They are the same as far as main characters. It is a buddy cop show within a supernatural setting. You know, this also sort of coincides with a shift in, like, feminist thought. Uh, We get, like, a big shift in feminism generally of, like, men and women being equal. Mm Mm-hmm. There isn't a lot of nuance within it, but it is like a big shift from before where it's like women don't even have rights at all. And Mm -hmm. now it's like, let's talk about being equal within a social context. Right. So that was a big thing within X-Files, which really drew people to it. And then uh, Buffy, created by Joss Whedon, who unfortunately is about to get a lot of good press from this episode. uh, God damn it. (laughs) Went out of his way to hire women writers. So obviously Buffy had a female main character. It had a lot of female characters in general. Mm -hmm. um, And specifically, he would hire women. So like everybody that worked on X-Files, for the most part, was a man. (laughs) Written by men. Yeah. For men. (laughs) Right. Uh, Buffy was, you know, he, he was working very hard to like be a part of this shift in feminism. So this is a quote from Fick. With Buffy, though, women were not only prominent characters, but also prominent writer-producers. And what's more, as the internet made such information more readily accessible all around, Buffy's women writers were seen and heard from in internet forums in a way that was completely new. Mm-hmm. So they were loved by the fans, welcomed with open arms, and they interacted with the fandom in a way that you would see, like, you know, the creator of Star Trek do, um, but in a way that, like, women had never done before because they didn't exist as these, like, writer, producer, like, these sorts of important creators in the show. Right. Um, Actual, like, canon positions. Right. So these shows heavily explored power dynamics uh, between counter-institutional forces... And the institutions they work for. So very much mirroring the uh, fan communities and the powers that be. Mm. So obviously X-Files is a show about, you know, two FBI agents uh, who were like, 
I don't know, investigating aliens, basically, like... Yeah, I don't, I've never actually seen X-Files. Um, I didn't even realize it was Jillian Anderson I know, <laughs> for, like, I, the longest time. Like, I think uh, you were the one that were like, you didn't know it was Jillian yeah, Anderson? Yeah, I remember that, because we were in a hotel room, and we were watching it, like, it was just on TV, and you were like, that looks like Jillian Anderson, and I was sitting there, and I was like, it's the X-Files. Yeah, and like, that's like, her oh whole God, big thing. Is. And I was like, it's the X-Files. <laughs> I was like, well, I'm telling you, I've never <laughs> seen like, it. It means nothing to me. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, whatever. But, you know, it was... This tiny little part of the FBI that was looking up, you know, researching and taking these cases that were yeah, take considered like, like bullshit to the rest of the FBI. Like yeah, that take like the, criminal minds and then make it fringe, basically. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Uh, those, you know, that was the vibe of the show. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't very like pro institution. Like this wasn't like NCIS where it's like pro government, pro. A cop. USA. Right. USA. (laughs) This is not back the blue. Right. As far as like FBI shows go. Like it is very like counterculture within Mm -hmm. the vibes of the show. And so that was obviously a heavy theme in that. And then the same with Buffy where, you know, it didn't have the same sort of like they worked within the government, but there was always sort of a we exist as a counter to the powers that be. So they were exploring dynamics that already exist within fandom culture. So I feel like this is the first time we really see something that we're going to see again and again and again, where fandom culture directly leads to huge changes in media. Um, Like media follows suit from fandom. So they uh, kind of exist as a full circle. Like these fandoms grow they have their own themes and these own, their own trends within it, their own culture that gets integrated into the next round of content because the people who are making these shows probably existed in fandom culture a long time before they made them. Like, this is just something that people do. You really don't make this kind of stuff out of the blue. You probably yeah. already like this content. Absolutely. You're probably already a nerd. You already like fandoms. So, like... It makes sense that this would happen. And then these shows and, you know, media in general has a huge effect on society at large. So fandom very much controls society. Like when we see it, this is going to be like a very, very common change, mm-hmm. um, especially in the U.S. Like uh, all of the stuff I'm talking about is like pretty U.S. specific. A lot of the shows are shows and movies are U.S. shows, like because U.S. is like our biggest export is media. Yeah. That is what we are putting out into the world. Yeah, we're the home of Hollywood. Right. Yeah, like, we have these, I don't know, we're just better. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just just going to say it. (laughs) I'm just going to say it. We're better. (laughs) So, 1990, Twin Peaks is released. So, Twin Peaks really is, like, um, credited with the beginning of, like, these shows. It was a huge deal um, in sort of the history of these shows. I did try to watch it at one point. I really couldn't get into it. It yeah. was a soap opera style show about an FBI agent going to like some town and it has heavy paranormal mystery themes. I watched a couple episodes and I was like, honestly, it's just the way it's made. I was like, I can't really get into this. Yeah. And also it's one of those shows where it's like a huge cast, but all of them are white. So it's it becomes like hard to tell like when all of the characters sort of look the same. Like, yeah. You know what I mean? Where yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah. They all just look like attractive white actor. Right. And so at some point you're like... Who is who? Yeah, I'm like, is that a different person from the woman you just introduced? Like, I'm right. having a really hard... Because they all look the same. Look there the is no... Same. Ch- at some point you're like, maybe just do what kids do and have them all wear signature colors or something if you're going to do that. Like, it's very hard to differentiate. It's like Absolutely. watching... 
Game of Thrones and they have like 45 old men and you're like, and they're all called <laughs> Sir something and you're like, who is this? Like, I don't remember him. I need you to give me like a little pop up like I'm watching a documentary or something that tells me who he is like every time he comes back. So yeah. I, it was just hard to like get into, but obviously nothing existed quite like this when it came out. And so it was... You know, it really paved the way for, like, internet phantoms. Mm. Um, X-Files comes out in 1993. Hey, the year you were born. You know, maybe I was meant to hunt aliens. I don't know. Mm. (laughs) Um, So, obviously, X-Files is about two FBI agents who are doing bullshit. And has heavy alien themes. Yeah. You know, the... I want to believe bullshit. Mm -hmm. Um, I have watched some of this as well, but not that much. It's pretty long. Uh, I would say it is a precursor to Supernatural. Okay. Yeah. I would say it's like, it really reminds me of Supernatural in a lot of ways. Like Mm -hmm. I think Supernatural came directly from X-Files. Okay. I'm Um, saying that like I've watched either of those shows. I'm like, oh, that makes sense. (laughs) I haven't seen either of them. Not a single episode. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And X-Files was like, very long running. You know, it was on the air for a very long time and then it was, you know, canceled, like it stopped and then it had a comeback decades later. It is was a mega fandom. So most of the X-Files fan fiction was about Mulder and Scully, which were the two main characters, which I'm just going to say it now, like the writers of the show were writing them as romantic interests, whether they realized it or not. Yeah. Because from the first episode that I watched, I was like, are they going to have sex? Mm-hmm. Like, are they going to have sex? Or, like, what are we doing here? Yeah. Because I'm like, oh, there's um, a lot of, like, sexual tension between these characters. They're going to have sex. Um, and this is also the first time we really get the term ship. So shipping, which is obviously derived from the word relationship, uh, is the desire by fans for two or more characters, either real-life celebrities or, fa- like, fictional characters, to be in a relationship, romantic or otherwise. Mm-hmm. Shipping, you know, pretty common. I feel like it's pretty self-explanatory. Yeah. But, This is where we get that term, people loved to ship Mulder and Scully. And like a lot of fandoms today, I feel like this is where it fucking started. And we are going to have so much discourse about this. It's so annoying. The um, inference of sexual tension between these characters was a very contentious subject within fandom. Uh, So we arrive at the first instance of the question to ship or not to ship. Mm. Or what I like to call shippers versus anti-shippers. Yes. They are going to play a big role in some fandoms later on. (laughs) They are annoying every time. Every time. So, you know, we're going to unpack this, like, as a theme generally. And then you will see it when we unpack, like, specific fandoms. But it, it really started in the X-Files because like, you know, obviously there were like similar issues, like there was ship or not ship issues with like Kirk and Spock or Sherlock and Watson. But first of all, there was already sort of an issue with it being gay. Mm -hmm. So it, it, there sort of was like, it's not even about shipping them. It's about the fact that they're uh, a gay couple. Like Mm -hmm. you never even get to the issue of whether or not you should ship them because you were already like the people who hate gay people are going to think it's bad to begin with. Right. Um, but more than that, the like ease of the internet made these two groups, like the shippers and anti-shippers have just the perfect arena to go at it. Like this is the speed of discourse was very fucking fast. Um, so specifically in the X-Files fandom, for like the shippers and anti-shippers, there was a viewpoint referred to as no Romo, which is extremely fucking funny, um, which refers to no romance. And it was sanctioned. It's just, it's just so bad. It's, it's just so, so lame. Bad. I'm like, at that point, you need to go outside. You need to like think Touch about your grass, life. Touch grass, <laughs> guys. Touch grass, please. Uh, <sighs> so this uh, no Romo 
point of view was sanctioned by Chris Carter and other show creators. So people who worked on the show took the no romo stance, no romance. Um, corny. Corny. Um, <laughs> That's corny count number, I don't know, like eight at this point? Uh, yeah, Only I think like so. three episodes in. I'm like, somebody will have to go back and listen to all of these and like let us know at the end. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, this viewpoint made the Mulder Scully ship kind of taboo within the fandom, and it was often belittled and frowned upon, much like the Slash in other fandoms. Again, uh, romance in general is looked down upon in so many aspects, like not just within fan fiction, but as a genre in general, and it is no accident that it is tied to women. So, you know, it was looked down upon the creators of the show who were writing, like, the most sexually charged thing I've ever watched were like, there's no romance there's no romance here and I'm like okay so the actors are just into each other like what's going on yeah. because like what's your explanation for right this? I'm like I don't know if we're watching the same show yeah. like I don't I don't know if you understand what's happening yeah, I'm like do you have the sound off maybe yeah. <laughs> it's like mm. you forgot to wear your glasses did you just write it and then you never watched it again I don't yeah know. Uh, give it a second watch through like <laughs> maybe you'll pick up on some of these things so you know the people who had this viewpoint basically felt that romantic partnerships would ruin the series so from Fick, I'm going to read this um, quote. She says, Reasons given for resisting Mulder slash Scully were many. Fear of the moonlighting syndrome, which was killing a show by resolving the tension that made it tick. Fear of the soap opera. A focus on relationship signals decline in quality or complexity. Fear of refocusing away from critique of government or from mythological exploration. Fear of political dilution, diminishing the plot line of a professional relationship of equals between a man and a woman, were just some of the few reasons that people gave for their dumb little no romance ship. You know, people had tons of issues within it uh, of why they thought, you know, it was a bad idea. I think the only one that is like even a little bit valid is the moonlining syndrome, which is, you know, I'm like, it definitely was a big part of the show. The like sexual tension, you know, will they, won't they was a big buildup. And because it ran for so long, you do kind of remove an aspect of the show whenever you resolve that. Of course, after they get together, you can like explore other themes, but you know, they sort of had an enemies to lovers energy. Like Mm. they weren't full enemies, but they didn't really like each other. They didn't think the same way. Mm -hmm. You know, they argued a lot about these various themes. So I kind of understand that one, but I also don't think it's a valid enough reason to look down on people who already shipped them because like I said, the show shipped them from the beginning. Mm -hmm. You can see it in there. And of course shippers won the day because when it eventually came back, and they had their last season, uh, it became canon. And they do end up together because that is where we were leading from the fucking beginning. Yeah. So that was like the big theme within X-Files. Of course, there was like other ships within it, but even those were very um, non-romantic. So like they would ship Mulder, not even ship Mulder, but they would just like write Mulder with other male characters and it was just them working together, their friendships and stuff like romance was looked down upon at all. Like, I don't know. It's just so weird. Yeah. Um, But that was like the big theme. So Buffy the Vampire Slayer was actually first a movie that came out in 1992, but I don't really know that it be like, was really that big of a deal. The TV show came out in 1997. So just, you know, a couple years after the X-Files. Yeah. Um, So Buffy is a show about a teenage girl who, inherits these like crazy superpowers where she is supposed to hunt vampires 
Buffy the Vampire Slayer, pretty self-explanatory. Yeah, pretty so she moves to a new school and has this old English librarian who is basically her mentor and this gang of friends, you know, her... So there was their, their own little, like, Mystery Incorporated Scooby-Doo gang going oh, okay. on. So they... Um, it does this trope that is now very, very commonplace, which I still really enjoy, where... It starts with one character that has this, like, superpowers, fighting crime, whatever, and slowly every single other character in the show finds out about it and eventually becomes part of whatever they're doing. It's yeah. pretty common when you watch, like, fantasy, uh, like, this kind of, you know, superhero fantasy kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a great, like, it's a great, it's a great trope. Like, yeah. it's, I feel like it's good every time, and it was great in this one. Mm-hmm. Um Friendship is magic. Yeah, friendship is magic, like, yeah. literally. And Buffy is, I think it stands up, like, I think it's still really fun. Obviously, it was created by Joss Whedon, but it had a lot of different writers throughout time. I think it was on for seven seasons, and then eventually turned into, like, a comic book. Wow. And it was a, you know, pretty giant fandom at the time. Um, and it very much led to some of the giant fandoms we're going to talk about when we get into the 2000s. So Buffy's release was like very in time with an increase in home computers. So obviously mm. we already have like the internet and, you know, this fan fiction trading going on. But in the late 90s, we finally get people buying computers for their home. It becomes way more accessible for middle class individuals. And so it's a lot more common for like just regular people to have it. And so we have these giant sites that crop up that are specifically dedicated to the show. And they would do what like, you know, Euphoria fans do, where it's like they watch the show when it came out that week, and then they would go to the website and talk about it and unpack every single thing that happened and, mm-hmm. you know, whatever, as people do with whatever content that they watch. Yeah. Uh, so the biggest site was known as The Bronze. And so obviously there were fans there to talk about the show, and eventually even show creators would interact with fans through The Bronze, their website. This wasn't really a fic site. It was just like a fandom site. And honestly, a lot of the community was kind of anti-fanfic. Like, the fandom community was anti-fanfic. However, Joss Whedon um, was very vocally pro-fanfic. Pretty consistently. He never spoke about specific fics. I imagine he never read specific fics within his own fandom. Because I don't think writer, like, you know, I don't think he would do that. And I think he actually told other writers for the show they weren't allowed to do that because she wouldn't want to steal content from somebody else. But he was very uh, encouraging to fic writers, really encouraged this like fandom culture. He loved the fans of the show and he loved interacting with them. And he even seemed to like have a good idea of what people would write fan fiction about. Um, At one point on the website, he wrote... Well, my computer's been down for a few weeks. Much has happened. We finished episode nine, which I suspect will generate much fanfic, both adult and otherwise. So he, like, was in fanfic culture. Like, he even knew what people was like, the girlies are going to love this. Like, Mm -hmm. straight up. Like, he was writing shit where he's like, oh, you just watch. You just watch. I'm writing this for (laughs) y'all. Um, and, you know, we even see this within the context of the show. Like I said, fandom already leads to, like, changes in theme, but he was writing stuff that was, like, felt very fan fiction-y. So one of them, you know, a common thing with, like, fan fiction is, like, what-if style. So it would be, like, what if Hermione was sorted into Slytherin instead Mm. of Gryffindor, and then it's a story, like, a retelling of the story with, like, one change, and sort of you have to adapt it in these other different ways. Yeah. Um, So what-if is a big thing, and um, there was an episode of the show that basically followed this what if style. Bas- oh. And so it was like, 
the episode explores what would happen if Buffy, our main character, never comes to Sunnydale. Um, Which, when the context of the show, will have supernatural beings no matter what. It's like always attracts them. So whether or not she's there doesn't matter. It's going to be filled with vampires and other bullshit. Mm. So a quote from Fick uh, where she writes about this specific episode. Sweet geeky Willow is a dark sadist dominatrix of a vampire. Dorky Xander is her leather clad greaser style mate. Broody heroic angel is now kept as vamp Willow's puppy and cowers in a cage waiting to be tortured. And to top it all off, cheerleaders are now forced to wear drab colors. Welcome to the Wishverse, where a new fic is still being posted. <laughs> so this was like this episode created the Wishverse. Yeah. Um, created by Joss Whedon and then had its own had its own writing like fanfic to it yeah uh, which i think is so funny i think these like other characters is great because willow is so like sweet and very like just a little helper and i love imagining her as like a dominatrix yeah like a torturing angel i'm like yes ma'am like i love to see it and then whedon later wrote in this au another episode called doppelgangland uh where willow her standard self is paired with her vampire self. So we get Willow slash Willow fanfic, which in the TV show, where Willow looks at herself and says, I think I'm kind of gay. Because she's looking at her evil self, um, which, you know, is a sexy dominatrix. Yeah. She's a baddie. "Uh, I think I'm kind of gay. Which, of course, uh, she was more than kind of gay. Because in the next season, we get that uh, full confirmation of gay with an actual girlfriend. Hell yeah. um, you know, we did it, gays. On camera, gay c- character, like, fuck yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and not for 0.2 seconds and then getting yelled at. Right. I'm like, it was very, like, this was an actual, like, loving relationship. And it mm-hmm. wasn't, like, super fucking toxic, like some of the other shit. Um, yeah. So this actually leads to sort of like an odd tangent that is sort of, um, it's not super related to fanfic, but I did think it was interesting. So Joss Whedon was obviously heavily involved in the fandom of Buffy, um, but he wasn't really known for catering to fans. So Mm. like fans would have things that they wanted to happen in the show that he would not follow suit with. You know, he often killed off like beloved characters, the fans like heartbreak basically. Yeah. Um, But he did like to like intellectually engage with the fans who were like dissecting the episode. So he loved to read people who were like, read these posts that were looking at the themes and like where the story might be going based on actions that they're seeing in the show. So Mm. he was interacting with the fandom in a way that, Really, I don't see any other creators doing this, like, prior to this. So, in an interview for NPR around this time, or, like, much later, he talks about, you know, when he was interacting with these fan posts where they were dissecting stuff. And he talks about becoming angry at a fan post where somebody said, there's lesbian subtext. Uh, And he was mad about this. So, he said, "Um, I just blew up. I was like, you guys see lesbian subtext behind every corner. I mean, you know, when Buffy's mom had a friend over, you're all lesbian subtext and i'm like guys you just want to see girls kissing it's not lesbian subtext and get over it and the person who wrote it said we would like you to go to our website where we have dissected every episode and written our treaties about the lesbian subtext Mm -hmm. i went on it and came back and apologized (laughs) it was like everything you said is true it's all right there and you know it's where i first coined the phrase byo subtext because i realized that (laughs) you know, part of art is going to be 
people bringing, it got to touch everybody in a way that's totally personal. Yeah. So that is a direct quote from him in this um, article, which I thought was extremely funny and also very cool that he was like reading this and then people were like, lesbian subtext. He's like, no, it's not there. And they were like, go look at our website. And he read it and he was like, that's on me. It is there. I, didn't I even don't know. know my fruits. <laughs> yeah, it literally. <laughs> no. It's not pomegranate. No, darling. It's not Give pomegranate. It what do you actually think it is? <laughs> it's grapefruit. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I don't know my fruits. <laughs> I was like, I just think it's really cool that he came back and apologized. Like, yeah. I think that's very funny that he went and read it and he was like, fuck, you're right. Like, He's like, oh, was shit. Like, sorry. <laughs> You know, the thing that the X-Files writers could not do where they're like, we're not writing that. Like, couldn't even see their own subtext. Like, yeah. it, it can be very hard to pick up on these themes. Like, that, we get that a lot with Harry Potter when we impact the fandom later. Yeah. Where there are themes that are established, sometimes accidentally, that never get closed because the author doesn't even know they exist. Yes. Or and, the author is a freaking bigot and doesn't yeah, want them to exist. For sure. Which we should have seen the red flags with the whole, like, Hermione is black thing. And she was just like, Ugh. That was so embarrassing. Yeah. Um, and then it just got worse. Anyways. Yeah. Well, you know, we'll unpack it. We'll unpack the Harry Potter thing. That's going to be a whole mess. Yeah. But, you know, I think that's very cool to, like, look at that and then come back and be like, yeah, I was wrong. She's, mm, yep. That's, like, up. not something that most writers can do. And, you know, I've... Again, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that he's getting some good Ugh, some good um, compliments here. But I'm like, he was very integral in this, like, fandom culture. And also writing a show that was, like, an ensemble cast and based heavily on interpersonal, rea- like, um, interactions. Mm-hmm. So it was one of the first shows that I ever watched that had that written in a way that was, like, you know, it made fans, like, ravenous yeah. to see where these characters were going and everything supernatural that happened within the show was very much secondary to the interactions between these characters. Yeah. Um, and obviously this was a big thing in all of the stuff that he made. Firefly is like a big one that people always talk about. These yeah, obsessed with it. Interactions between characters that were like written extremely well and like made them real people. Yeah. Um, anyways, that's a little, little <laughs> Buffy tangent. I thought it was interesting. <laughs> so Buffy is one of the first places especially on the internet, where we see a creator who is outspoken about their pro-fanfic stance. Mm. Uh, This is obviously not a common thread for most creators, and obviously, and like, honestly, we're going to get into some very bad takes later on in our series, but... Later on in this episode. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, we are. There's a little (laughs) foreboding there. Um, Foreshadowing some bullshit. Uh, So... This is the first place that we really get that and not just with Joss Whedon. Uh, another one who was very pro-fanfic was a Buffy writer, Jane um, Espenson. So she was obviously a writer for the show, and she talked positively about fic in um, a posting on The Bronze, the website that I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, she also said that she wasn't allowed to read Buffy fanfic for an obvi- like for obvious reasons, but she read fanfic in other uh, fandoms. Yeah. So she was very encouraging to like fanfic writers and she would write bronze posts about like writing scripts, dialogue, voice, and how to get started in TV writing. So giving them like actual advice on how to integrate these complicated abstract things into their story without being like judgmental where they're like, fanfic is bad. They're, she's like, you know, it's really complicated to integrate tons of different shit into your story. Like here's yeah. how we do it. Yeah. Uh, which I thought was very cool. That's um, so cool. 
So this is also a quote from Fick. Espenson goes on to say that fan fiction is the best training you could have to be a working professional television writer and agrees with Whedon that fan fiction is a huge compliment to the writer. It is a sign that a character has been created that seems to the viewer to have a life beyond the edges of the screen. Nothing could be a bigger compliment to a writer than a character that other people feel that they can write for. So that is it's like such a positive view of fanfic. And honestly, the viewpoint that I have, it's very obvious that this is the viewpoint that I have where I'm like, this is a compliment. Mm-hmm. If people are writing fanfiction about characters you create, nothing could be a bigger compliment because they took your care, like something that invented, like you just invented it in your brain mm-hmm. and they care about those characters enough that they want to see them exist in like their own world. So it was just very cool that like he even went out of his way to hire people that's had very similar opinions about the fanfic community. And then uh, within like the fan writing for like fan, like the Buffy fandom, there were even like huge groups and like message boards that were just devoted to writing. So like writing style, fictional devices, script writing, and also huge guides to slang. So like British, American, and Buffy specific slang. Interesting. To like utilize in your stories. Yeah. It was very, um, you know, obviously the fandom as a whole might've been like anti-fic in the beginning, but it's like fan fiction. This was a a big breeding ground for like fan fiction culture, Hmm. this huge thing. And because it was so like, there's so many characters to write about. There is so many different ships that could be written about. It's not just two main characters or like the side characters are boring. Like it is very much an ensemble cast. There are so many, and even like new characters get introduced and they are well-written and interesting and they interact with all the characters differently. Like it's, people had a lot of fun. Yeah. So that was in the late nineties. And with that, we have our next copyright law break, which I think this is our last one before we get to the legality episode. So in 1998, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, the DMCA, was passed. So this act implemented two 1996 treaties from the World Intellectual Property Organization. Mm-hmm. Um, WIPO, which I have done exorbitant amount of research on <laughs> one of my jobs. Um, if I could ever hear about WIPO again, that would make my life a lot easier. Anyways, <laughs> just kidding. They're fine. So the DMCA is like, we're going to have it's going to play a big part in the legality, but also in just like different stuff throughout fan fiction, um, because it was very much copyright in the confines of the internet. Mm -hmm. Um, But the big things that, you know, to know from it is one that it like, it increased penalties for copyright infringement on the internet and like expanded copyright protections while also creating a, limitation uh, on liability for providers of online services for copyright infringements by their users, which is legal jargon, but basically means that if you make a site like YouTube and somebody publishes the entire Lord of the Rings saga on your website, um, you are not directly liable for their copyright infringement. Mm -hmm. However, this does have its own caveats. Like you have to abide by their rules if you are allowing them to continue to do this without acting in any way. And it's like, you're knowingly involved in their copyright infringement. There is different rules. Again, we'll get into that in the legality, but the big thing to know about this is it really absolves a lot of online service providers from being responsible for copyright infringement. And this is going to play a huge part in fan fiction culture. Yeah. Um, so 
Next episode, we'll get into the 2000s. We'll get to 9-11. But before we get there, we have um, a, a long tangent uh, that I'm calling the Anne Rice incident. Anne Rice. I'm like, let's get into it. Here we go. Um, so I feel like if you were even a little bit familiar with fanfic lore, you probably are already um, familiar with Anne Rice. Uh, may she rest in fucking pieces. <laughs> um, so she is the author of Interview with a Vampire, like the entire saga of Interview with a Vampire. Mm-hmm. And she was aggressively against fan fiction. Dude, so, she hated fanfic. It's insane. So these books were published like in the 70s, you know, and she published books for a very long time. She's written a ton. But a big, like the big change in her fandom was due to the movie that came out in 1994. And obviously there was a ton of fan fiction for Interview with a Vampire because everybody wanted to see sexy vampires having sex. Yes. Obviously. Obviously. Everybody loves that. Yeah. So on April 7th, 2001, Anne Rice writes on her website, I do not allow fan fiction. The characters are copyrighted. It upsets me terribly to even think about fan fiction with my characters. I advise my readers to write their own original stories with your own characters. It is absolutely essential that you respect my wishes. I don't have to respect shit, Anne. Um... So embarrassing. Corny meter is off the fucking charts. Oh my we God. We have broken the corny meter, guys. It's always paired with these like outrageous statements of it is absolutely essential that you respect my wishes where it's like, <sighs> I, you know, I, I feel like I'm going to talk about this later. Uh, I'm going to try and give like a pretty good outline of what it means as a concept, but it very much interacts with like death of the author and the fact that content once it leaves the creator no longer belongs to that creator it's like obviously the law sides with them copyright protection is a thing but it's like it breeds its own life stories exist outside of yourself yeah um and you know like i said this is a very complex topic we will unpack it later alan moore has a lot to say about it and he yeah. is correct yeah most of the time with yeah. this bullshit but sometimes creators have this ego problem where they cannot allow these stories to exist outside of themselves. Yes. And the fact that people have these characters as living, breathing things within their own minds messes with them. Yeah, and it just kills them. I feel like if this is something that you think you would have a hard time with, I implore you just not to publish whatever you've written. Yeah, don't be a writer. Like, don't literally. be in the arts, Like, honestly. if you don't want people to fuck with your characters, do not let them out into the world. Yeah. Because that is the only way to keep that from happening. Mm-hmm. And if you are so disturbed by that, that you have to publish something on your website saying that people need to... Re- that it's essential for people to respect your wishes, you shouldn't be writing in the first place. Because, mm-hmm. honestly, it's just... it's. It doesn't belong to you. Yeah. Like, I've made a lot of jokes, but I'm like, this is a problem. It is. This is is a bad take in the way that's like, your ego does not entitle you to respect. Yes. The the fact that you created art, like, once or a few times does not make you superior to everyone else in Mm -hmm. the world. You do not join some sort of weird, like, elite class of humans because you made a story like it's a very very weird thing to like yeah basically like assume that you're better than everybody else now because you wrote something that was kind of popular it's very strange and it takes like the whole like kind of notion of like artists when they treat their project like a baby and they Mm -hmm. like can't you know divorce their emotion from their project at all to like a whole new fucking level yeah it's like as if someone is, like, ripping off your arm 
because you know like you like they like your art right that's like what fanfic is is the people like art so much that they are continuing to like work with it and play with it i was like if you have made art that is so impactful that other people want to transform it and want to exist in that world like that is such a big deal Mm -hmm. and you could really you know enjoy those aspects of it but your ego does not allow for that to happen like that is what is happening here where it's like you created something and instead of being like it's really cool that people are into this and also interacting with the fandom of being like yeah it's cool that this exists and you guys are creating stuff that also has value just innately Mm -hmm. um you know and instead is very like I created this and therefore I am better than all of my fans. Um, which it's, it, it's sort of like an entitlement to fans in general, like an yeah. entitlement to fan worship where it's like, it doesn't matter how creative you are. It doesn't matter what things you've made. Yeah. Like George Lucas made this huge series and these characters that are beloved now, it doesn't matter because if you're a shitty person and you have bad opinions and you're shitty to your fans, like the one group of people that you should not be fucking shitty to, like that discounts you from any type of ego that you could possibly have. And I know that ego plays a part in all human interactions, but in art it can take over and it poisons everything you do. Like ego within creation of art is bad. Absolutely it is. And it's like, I think about other forms of art too. And also just like people with like less, I don't know, success or like, you know, monetary value in their art or whatever, you know, people who made more like medium level works or something like that. So, you know, nothing that really like changed a genre that are still really popular. They still like made a good career out of it or whatever. You still have the expectation that whatever you make next should, you know, to your, you know, as much as you can, try and make it as good, if not better. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? You're always trying to better yourself, better your art with mm-hmm. every new step, new project that you take. And having this kind of attitude just makes me feel like you yourself are so insecure of your own abilities that you cannot make anything else new now. Right. Like, um, that is even comparable. Like, right. it just, like, shows, like, a you need to be so attached to this piece of work that it's like, are you afraid that you can't do anything else? Are you afraid of your creative limits that this is all you could produce? that you are now mad at other people because they have different creative perspectives or whatever that they want to pursue. Right, or maybe making content based on your content that is better. Yeah. Like, it is is very much an insecurity thing. I mean, I think we see that with, like, J.K. Rowling with Fantastic Beasts, where it's like she has so much creative control at this point that her inability to write a movie was overlooked for two entire, like, huge budget movies. Yeah. Um, because she created this thing and she was so good at creating this one thing. And it's like, you, you know, every new piece of art stand on its own. Yeah. And it's like, it's very normal to be an artist and be insecure. That is human. Like yeah. you are going to be insecure until you're dead. Like, yeah. unfortunately that is life. Mm-hmm. Um, but like if uh, you could say that we are insecure, uh, 24 seven, yeah. I would say. Cause I mean, I'm like, yeah. ego only exists with insecurity. Yes. Ego cannot exist unless you were insecure. Mm-hmm. Ego doesn't come from self-confidence. Like no. Those are not the same thing. Ego is a detriment to yourself and your art. Absolutely. So it's just, it's a bad opinion altogether. Yeah. Fuck, fuck this bullshit. So anyways, this happens April 7th, 2001. 
Uh, right after this, her lawyer sent out a ton of cease and desist letters to fanfic authors and sites. So at least they're doing more than fucking Howard did, where it was just like an emotional threat. He does <laughs> sick- just crying into his yeah. fucking like legal pad. Right. She sicks her actual lawyers on a bunch of people writing for free because she's a crazy person. Um, so the most famous one of these cease and desists uh, was a letter sent to or was an email sent to fanfiction.net on may 18th 2001 so fanfiction.net it was the first like archive of fanfiction and we will unpack that fully in our next episode when we start talking about websites and where people find fanfiction now uh we will talk about it but just for now know that it was very early on fanfiction site. So they Mm -hmm. received this. It has come to our attention that your website fanfiction.net makes available over the internet numerous stories and other literary materials which contain the above listed characters and other material from the property. Even when done on a non-profit and or amateur basis, such use of such characters and material without Miss Rice's permission constitute copyright infringement. While Miss Rice greatly appreciates the interest of her fans, fuck off, in her characters and materials, it is her and our responsibility to make sure that her rights are not infringed. Accordingly, we must insist that fanfiction.net immediately refrain from making available over the internet or otherwise any work based on any element of the property, including, without limitation, the above listed character. It is essential was using that word. That you confirm immediately by email that fanfiction.net has complied with the foregoing. If we do not receive the foregoing reassurance from you by the close of business on Monday, May 21st, 2001, we will have no choice but to advise fanfiction.net's internet service of this matter. Internet server of this matter. Bullshit. Um, yeah. And to ask such server to take appropriate action fucking put your own work into it what the fuck is this yeah i'm like the law literally says that they don't have to do that so what are you gonna make them do like they don't have to do yeah, shit like for it's you. not through an internet server yeah i didn't send a dmca takedown like yeah. this was just an email yeah just a cease and desist like mm-hmm. it's not through the, whatever um fucking idiots yeah uh the foregoing is stated without prejudice to the rights and remedies of miss rice and her publisher all of which are hereby expressly reserved which i was like that means nothing mm-hmm. um i mean anytime you see something where it's like rights reserved reserved um it does not need to be said yeah like if you see something and it's like copyright like it's bullshit copyright has automatic yeah it's always like shows some sort of like amateur aspect to trying to use the law yeah <laughs> like that's how this reads i'm sure they were real lawyers obviously but it's like it very much reads as like empty threats a lot of times when mm-hmm. you're seeing these like cease and desist letters to people that the lawyers know cannot fight back. Yes. Because they are doing it for free. They know they are not super fucking wealthy because they've been writing books since the 70s. Yeah. Like, they know that they are punching down. You will see a lot of this, like, legal jargon that means nothing. Yeah, they will just... sound super fucking official. Exactly. They'll just throw fucking big-ass words at people just hoping that that deters them. Yeah. So it's like, yeah. all of Anne Rice's stuff was removed from fanfic.net. They put out like a, you know, notice on the front of their website being like, it's all removed by the request of Anne Rice. This was Ooh. a fucking shit storm. Like this was a fucking shit storm in the fandom. Yeah. Um, and by early 2002, it was almost impossible to find fan fiction about this series. Right. Uh, you really had to like do a deep dive or know people like you had to be invited in. These became like closed circles of fan fiction trading. Right. Um, there was even this website, which is still up on angel fire. 
uh, with a pretty solid outline of like what happened and how to go about fan fiction now and all of these different things. She says on the website, or the person who wrote this says on the website, the problem was that she was not asking or even telling. She was using the excuse of fanfic to cyberstalk and harass the fanfic authors, even after said authors removed the illegal fanfic from their sites. Not having the money or legal resources to defend themselves against this, hiding was the only option left. Yeah. So this is not just about the fact that they sent dumb cease and desist letters. Yeah. Anne Rice was literally fucking doxing people. Yeah. Who she knew could not fight back against her. Absolutely. I, like, I want to be clear that, like, Anne Rice couldn't go fuck herself. Yeah. I'm glad she's dead. Like, this so fucking glad she's sucks. Dead. I'm like, this is a bad fucking thing to do. It's like, not only were you being a bitch by putting your lawyers on people, you knew you couldn't fight back. Yeah. Like, that is a shitty thing to do from the get-go. Yeah. Even if this is something you hate, like, to immediately be, like, my lawyers need to be involved. That is a problem. But then to go after, like, the people who published this or wrote this fanfic, your own fans, is a problem. Yeah, I'm like, if someone literally can't even afford to have any form of, like, legal defense of themselves, like, they're not taking anything from you. You are not, like, disadvantaged. There's nothing, like, there's no harm coming to your, like, freaking estate. Like, you have an estate. You know what I mean? Like, these people are not a threat to you at all. If they can't even afford their own legal defense, Mm -hmm. like, go away. Like, why do you care so much? Right. It's like, this is fucking awful. Um, So on this website as well, there's some, she wrote in response to, like, questions of what if I want to write Anne Rice fan fiction. And the person that wrote this Angel Fire Rice site said, are you sure? <laughs> know what you're getting into. The threat of personal harassment is very real. Mm-hmm. Anne Rice does not want you writing fan fiction and she has the money to make you stop. Yeah. Do you really want to try this? <laughs> the answer is no. Uh, she makes bad content. It wasn't even that interesting. No. Her movie has Tom Cruise in it. Do we care? Ooh, we hate Scientology. Yeah. I'm like, we are getting a remake with, you know, she's already dead, so it doesn't even matter. Yeah. Uh, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> um, I hope her estate stays fucking silent. Whoever's the executor, shut up. <laughs> um, <laughs> Don't follow then, suit. Yeah. Like, seriously. Uh, so... Even, like, this gets even worse. Uh, So this is a quote from the article, None of This is New, written by Jordan West. Ironically, even Anne Rice has had her hand in the fan fiction game with the trilogy of BDSM novellas, including the fairy tale figure Sleeping Beauty and another ongoing novel series about Jesus. For all her righteous ire over intellectual property, the biggest material difference between Rice's fairy tale porn and the Lestat fic I wrote 10 years ago is a price tag. <gasps> oh! <laughs> Get after her. <laughs> Bitch. Just fucking flamed her. Oh my god, that's so fucking funny. Um, and okay, so... This is not even fully related to fanfic. This is literally, like I said, this is an Anne Rice tangent. In 2004, several years later, she releases a book, Blood Canticle, as in the title of the book, it was published, and it got horrible reviews um, from fans on Amazon. Oh. uh, Which Anne Rice was fucking pissed about. Of course. And so she took things into her own hands and responded to these bad reviews on Amazon. Embarrassing. In a 1,200-word rant. Uh, that was a defense of her book, laying into the critics um, that she said were 
interrogating the text from the wrong perspective, which basically became like a catchphrase around the internet used by fans to essentially mock someone, um, either the original author or just anyone who is like being a fucking pedantic asshole Mm. about um, content Mm -hmm. was to say that they were interrogating the text from the wrong perspective. So so, fucking embarrassing. Somebody needed to take the internet the same way that they took the logins away from Adele. Somebody needed to get her off of the fucking internet. Yeah, her publicist was sleeping on the job. I was like, that is awful. (laughs) And then she talked about it again, all of this stuff in 2002 in an interview that she did with Metro, where she said, I got upset about 20 years ago because I thought it would block me. However, it's been very easy to avoid reading any. So live and let live. Talking about fan fiction. If I were a young writer, I'd want... To own my own ideas. Fuck off. Um, But maybe fan fiction is a transitional phase. Whatever gets you there, gets you there. Fuck off. Like you were a fucking monster in the fan fiction community. You don't get to backtrack now. But uh, don't worry. She did clarify in this fucking article that she doesn't hate all fan fiction. It's only fan fiction of her own work. So she did reiterate in the article that she still hates fan fiction of her own work. uh, Because somehow that's different because she's special. I guess because God, because she did become super, you know, religious. I don't know. Fucking bullshit. God. Um, I'm about to read some It's always quotes. the born again. It really is. <laughs> <laughs> Again, this is just, at this point, it's just Anne Rice hate. But she, I like couldn't tell this whole story without talking about this. So mm-hmm. she does another interview in 2015 where she talks about this romance novel uh, called For Such a Time. So she says, we are facing a new era of censorship in the name of political correctness. In the wake of the heavy online criticism that has been directed at Kate Breslin's romance novel for such a time. So this book imagines a relationship between a Jewish woman in a concentration camp and an SS uh, commandant and her eventual conversion to Christianity. Oh, um, whoa. I did not. It was already like teetering or not even teetering, just like really problematic. Just the two pairings. But then she converts to Christian. Uh, yeah. Yikes. Um, critics yikes. called it deeply offensive and insensitive as yeah. well as anti-Semitic, violent and dangerous. Yeah. Obviously there was widespread online debate prompting, you know, tons of like one star reviews on Amazon, which is uh, Anne Rice's enemy because she can't take the fucking heat. This isn't even her art. Like, this isn't even her book. It's not even her fucking really work. About it. So I'm just gonna, I literally am just gonna read some quotes from her because I think they're fucking funny. Let's hear um, them. So she says, there are forces at work in the book world that want to control fiction writing in terms of who has the right to write about what. That's so funny, Rice. That's so fucking funny that you would say that. <laughs> She's like, the powers that be, but the powers are fanfic writers? Yeah, the fan- that's the fandom. That's the problem. Yeah. Uh, they, they're the real me? powerhouses. No, it's them. <laughs> Some even advocate the out-and-out censorship of older works using words we now deem wholly unacceptable. Some are critical of novels involving rape. Some are, like... Yeah. There's no follow-up to that. She just says they're critical of novels involving rape. Some argue that white novelists have no right to write about people of color. No one is saying that. Yeah, Um, no one said that, but I don't know, maybe you're being racist in your descriptions of people of color. Maybe that's what they're talking about. Yep. And Christians should not write novels involving Jews or topics involving Jews. I I believe that one wholeheartedly. Um, (laughs) I hate to say it, but that's the Bible. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's literally what it is. Um, She says, I think all this is dangerous. I think we have to stand up for the freedom of fiction writers to write what they want to write. 
That's so fucking funny you would say that, Anne. Oh my god, that's so funny that you would say that. Funny. No matter how offensive it might be to someone else. I don't know, maybe like the original author of something. Hmm. Like, I don't know, like crazy that you would even say that. So wild. We must stand up for fiction as a place where transgressive behavior and ideas can be explored. Internet campaigns to destroy authors accused of inappropriate subject matter or attitudes are dangerous to us all. Fuck you, Anne. Um, <laughs> what are you even talking about? She said this. I think she sent all of this like in an email to the Guardian, not the um, fanzine, the actual Guardian. Right. Which I'm like, did you guys steal that name? Be honest. Um, yeah. She said the tide is turning and the the people are fed up with censorship as bullying, bullying, which I was like, I don't know what tide you were talking about because it sure ain't. Like, maybe she was talking about Donald Trump. Like, it is 2015. Yeah. She definitely voted for Trump. Like, there's no fucking way that she oh, didn't. absolutely she did. Is she American? Oh, let me look. No, I don't know. <laughs> I thought you were American. Um, yeah, she's from New Orleans. Okay. Oh, yeah, that's right. Okay, I did know that. So, another quote. They've had it up to, referring to the people who were... Uh, fed up with censorship oh. by bullying. They've had it up to here with seeing internet discussions and book review sites and forum threads swamped by people who are disruptive and do not respect the very idea of open discussion. Oh my God. And I think that is the crux of what we're dealing with. A class of persons on the net in online book forums and other forums. <laughs> I love that added other forums and book forums. I mean, and any... Other forums that wouldn't be about books. That's um, not just about me. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and Amazon's uh, comment sections for Anne Rice books. And I guess for other books as, as well. well. As other mm, things, too. Yeah. There are multiple people involved in this. It's not just about my fucking beef. Who are indeed trying to shut down their opponents rather than engage them. Engage with them. And oh my God, do I fucking wish that it worked. Like, shut the fuck up. <sighs> Saying something unkind publicly about J.K. Rowling... <laughs> No, I knew she was going to bring her up, I but know. I, I was just waiting. <laughs> They'll flame your book and bring you down, which I was like, girl, what are you talking about? <laughs> Make a negative remark in the press about the fans wanting cheaper ebooks? How dare you? Yeah, how dare you, fucking bitch? Yeah. They'll take you down. Have a character marry the wrong guy in a series? How dare you? They will libel you. Libel your motives, your integrity, your attitude towards your fans and bring you down. <laughs> And no one can liable you if there's nothing <laughs> that people even know about you, okay? Oh you can't be like, they're spreading fake rumors about me when I don't know a single fucking shit about you, okay? Nobody gives a shit about you, Anne. When I am old enough to start having Republican opinions where it's like, time has moved forward and it has left me in the dust, just shoot me in the fucking head. Yeah. Somebody take the internet away. I don't want to be sending emails to a fucking news source writing this fucking bullshit. Like, oh my God, I just... Yeah. It's just like J.K. Rowling in the way of, like, continuing to dig your own fucking grave. Yeah. Where it's just, like, it just got worse every time. And so much of, like, political correctness. And I'm like, cry me a fucking river. Because it's yeah. it's always the same argument of, like, they're too politically correct and not, you know, maybe discourse is, like, damaging to people and not everything needs to have it. But it is important to think about media critically and not just let it exist unchallenged. Yeah. Um, and also, like... Fictional stories can show the biases of the creators. You know, it's never nuanced like that. It's always 
uh, PC culture is the problem. <laughs> Always. Yeah, I'm... Okay, listen. I am a fan of the medical advances we've made. I think it's really cool that we can help people with diseases. Technology has really lengthened the lifespan of humans. That being said, should we realistically live past 50? No, I don't think we should. Science has gone too far. This is not what God intended. Exactly. We were supposed to live for like 40 to 50 years. And I think that's the max. That's enough. That's not to say that, I don't know. No, I don't really see that many adults with value like that in that age range. Like, like at that point, out of pocket shit. At that point, we're just like trying to tiptoe around you. We're always trying to excuse your behavior, <laughs> telling you know people that they're from a different time. Well, if they're from a different time, let them stay there. Okay, you shouldn't be existing in this time if you can't get with it. Yeah, so I'm like, leave. if you can't get into it, be quiet. Just silence. that is my that is my motto. If you have dumb opinions, keep them to yourself. Keep them to yourself. Nobody needs you to hear them. You can be dumb in your head all fucking day. Dude, I have so many dumb opinions that, like, every freaking day I'm grateful that I didn't say them out loud. Yeah. Because I'm like, oh, shit, that was fucking dumb. I that was them, stupid as hell. My inner lawyer is like, mm-mm. Mm-mm. No, thank you. My inner publicist said, we're not we're not spreading that one. I'm we're like, not going to mm-hmm. say that out loud. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, okay. And sometimes it hits the same day. Sometimes it hits, like, a year later. Yeah. And I'm like, oh. That was going to be stupid right. as hell. Because it's way better to cringe privately than to have to ruin your own reputation online by saying some dumb shit. Absolutely. So, as I said, Anne Rice is fucking dead. She died in December of 2001. <sighs> Rest in fucking pieces. So yeah. if you want to go read fan fiction, they are now being published on fanfic.net and AO3. And we are getting a new show with people of color. Some uh, yeah. PC casting, if you will. <laughs> You know, political correctness. Um, they're like, why does the person of color have to be a good character? They're like, they're, like, they're evil. evil in real life, so why don't they be evil in fiction? <laughs> and it's like, what are you saying I'm right like, now? Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> um, so if you want to read fanfic, it's out there. I don't know that her estate's going to do the same dumb shit. I'm Hopefully hoping they not. will not. Because that would just be embarrassing for her entire legacy. Yeah. Let's let her bad opinions be buried with her. Yeah. Um, so with that, that is going to round out this episode next time we are going to enter the 2000s we are going to talk websites as we make our way to 9-11 yep (laughs) we are we are inching ever so close (laughs) to (laughs) 9-11 all right guys thanks for hanging out um so yeah we'll see you when we see you Bye. bye the podcast rejects is a gamer frauds network production find us on instagram at the podcast rejects for early access to all gamer frauds network content and a ton of exclusive perks join our patreon at patreon.com slash gamer frauds